Hey up friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you're listening to episode 93 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening to this one, hope you enjoy it. So in this episode, I've got a conversation with my friend Gabe Davis, which is one I'd been looking forward to for quite a long time actually. A couple of reasons really. Firstly, obviously, because Gabe's had one of UK surfing's most legendary and interesting careers. End of story. Obviously a reason enough to get him on the podcast. And I really wanted to talk about it from his early years growing up on the Northeast to his, uh, you know, his long professional career, the stints in Hawaii, the big wave chapter in Ireland that redefined what British surfers could do on an international and big wave stage. His influence looms large over UK surfing, um, much as Gabe would, well, no doubt is cringing to hear that line because he's so modest and polite, but it is true. I'm just going to say that. And then there's Gabe's position as one of the key influences in the northeast of England surf scene, which was another reason why I was so keen to have him on the show. Now, I've not really featured or discussed northeast surfing on the show yet, and I've got to confess, personally, I'm extremely experienced when it comes inexperienced, I should say, when it comes to this quintessentially British scene. But it really is one of the UK's true surfing heartlands with some of the best waves in the country and one of the most passionate and hardcore scenes going. Now, Gabe has been synonymous with this region since he started surfing back in the 80s. And when researching this episode, I chatted to one of his peers and a mutual friend of ours, Joel Gray, who put it better than I'll be able to when he said, ask him about his dedication and absolute mastery of East Coast waves, especially the Cove. He wasn't and isn't just good at it. He basically dedicated himself to it and was significantly pushed by his older brother, Jesse, who still sits deeper than him today. Now, locals from up there are probably going to scoff, but that image and picture, a closely knit scene who've dedicated themselves to one of the most simultaneously bleak and beautiful stretches of coastline in the UK, goes a long way to summing up the hardcore romanticism at the heart of the northeast scene, which has existed, as Gabe does point out in the interview, long before the concept of cold water surfing became a marketing slogan. Characters like Veach, who we discuss, have a massive and largely unknown, really, in the wider community, influence on UK surf culture and I was just really keen to get Gabe's unparalleled insights into that scene because it's an important story that obviously deserves to be told. Not that Gabe's career was confined to this particular corner of the surfing world, segue alert, ambition and drive saw him test himself around the world particularly and notably in Hawaii, led to a pioneering free surf career I guess you could say with Quicksilver which occupied him for most of his 20s and 30s. Now, being the personable lad that he is, Gabe also became great friends with some of the leading lights of uh, the surf world, people like Kelly Slater and the Malloys, the latter trio in particular, becoming a massive influence on his future direction. That's both in and out of the water, as we discovered during the conversation. They're a huge influence on Gabe and friends when they turn their attention to the heaving waves off the coast of Ireland. And they were equally an influence on Gabe in the later stages of his career when he began working with Patagonia once his association with Quicksilver came to an end, something else we discussed. Now, I've known Gabe for a while, but over the last year especially, we've become good mates really um and that's about when i first asked him to come on the show he was pretty reticent to be honest definitely something i hear a lot from people asked to come on the podcast oh no one gives a shit what i've got to say i'm worried i'm gonna make a cock of myself i don't like the sound of my own voice i always say yep i feel like that every single episode and everybody says that but i did keep pushing gabe because he's a legend and because i knew he'd be a great guest with plenty to say and some amazing tales to tell and happily i was right now i'll be back at the end but for now, here I am with Gabe Davis, Northeast Rising. Enjoy. How you doing, Gabe? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. How are you? I'm all right. We finally did it. Shoes off. I'm going to do that as well. <laughs> it, it is a hot, hot day in London, isn't it? probably not the ideal place to be doing this i feel like we could have definitely connected at a more a scenic location yeah the back street to london will, will work on one of the hottest grubbiest days of the year 
And uh, I'm going to say thanks to our friends at Vision 9 for letting us use their meeting room. Uh, you know, heart of Common Garden. But you're right. Good, man. Yeah. Yeah, really good. What's going on? Living up in the northeast of England still. Um, yeah, just sort of got a little family happening and working for Patagonia and sort of, yeah, sort of the work I'm doing is trying to change the world, inspired by. Uh, Yvonne Chouinard that everyone I'm sure knows about so it's like very very requested guest for this podcast <laughs> he, he would be a he would be a big yeah. hit for sure yeah um, and every time I raise it they're like yeah no chance <laughs> no chance he does like one interview a decade <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah I keep so, plugging away though I reckon I'll go for it yeah just don't be shy yeah right so and surfing yeah like occasional surfing when the waves are good uh, on the east coast where i live the waves are pretty intermittent at best so um classic english surf like yeah i'm probably on the sort of scarcer side of that because we're on the east coast but when the waves are good up there the waves are really good so if there's a moment i really want to be there for that and sort of be ready for it even though months or weeks may go by between those times yeah and how, have you had any good days recently? Nothing for a while. I think I saw a really good picture of you from this winter, maybe. There was a couple of those reefs just to have. Yeah. They're just showcase reefs. Yeah. That if they had the Atlantic swells that you'd, you know, it, it's, uh, it would be magical. Yeah. Some of the reefs are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's where you've been surfing, like, you pretty much your entire life right yeah so so, so start just started off like age 10 like the little grom on the beach um because where, where exactly are you from like, so Tynemouth. because i think i think this is one of the things i really want to talk to you about is that scene really and that and the particular place it has in uk surfing because i think like there's a lot of international listeners to this and i think people that know about british surfing they'll know thursday they'll know obviously Ireland isn't British but you know what I mean they'll know that they'll know Cornwall a little bit they'll know Newquay but I think the North East is probably not super well known really and it and it is good isn't it on its day so like so sort of and there's a heritage yeah there's like it's, it's sort of the um, counterculture surf zone yeah um, of the UK which in itself is probably like a sort of off the map surf zone globally and exactly um, yeah so for people that don't know, the nearest city is Newcastle. Yeah. So the swell, uh, so it's the northeast coast of England, or about two hours from Scotland. We get swell generally from the north. So a Scandinavian low pressure systems send the swell down the North Sea, um, prevailing winds offshore, um, cold water. Nice and cold. Industrial little zone. Yeah. Interspersed with like classic castles yeah i mean it's beautiful um, like, you know, not, not the power station parts maybe not but like you know what i mean that stretch is just amazing isn't it? it's like it's got it's got a bit of mix of everything it's yeah. like it is literally like sort of yeah it's got really special places in that coast and yeah the whole spectrum of uh, super industrial to super rural clear yeah. water filthy water um a few crazy lefts occasional rights yeah and then, and then sort of, fa- and then growing up there, it was like shooting distance up to Scotland, the like classic replace of Scotland or across to Ireland, those whole rites of passage journeys you go on as a young kid in the UK, you know, you go to Scotland, we go to Ireland, we go to yeah. Cornwall, um, before you even step into like the European beaches of France and Portugal, where yeah. you sort of end up going all the time. So you, so Tynemouth you're from? So Tynemouth, yeah, it's like the coastal town to Newcastle. Right. A little that, village vibe. How far is that from Newcastle? Like 10 miles. Okay. 10 miles. Right. And when did you start surfing? So it was age 10. Um, it was a friend of my dad's who was a sculptor. Um, no surf schools, no surf shops. So we're talking like early, what, mid 80s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Going, we're going back in time. Yeah. Bit, yeah. Probably like 85, yeah. 86, probably. So obviously not like it is now. Where... No. It was like we were in, um, if people are old enough to remember the sort of beaver tail wetsuits. The gear you got was like hand-me-down gear. Yeah. Um, it was like trouser wetsuits with a with a front zip. You weren't going on surf tail. dome. Yeah. No no surf dome <laughs> deliveries. Yeah. It was like no prime accounts. <laughs> it's like just getting a block of wax was like someone had to like physically drive it seven hours to yeah get the wax from Cornwall to where we live. Yeah. And we didn't have wetsuit gloves, so we wore like those marigold washing up gloves. 
How'd they work? Yeah, pretty bad, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Technically terribly. Um, we used to wear, the wetsuits were like big V-neck wetsuits. Yeah. So we put like woolly scarves in to stop the water getting in. Right. Which didn't work either. It's so funny, isn't it? But it was literally like hand-me-down gear. Yeah, anything to get in really. We were literally fighting over gear yeah. to get in. And what, what was it that got you into that? Because that is a pretty random thing to be doing in the northeast in, I think, well, in the mid-80s. You imagine like the classic thing was like it's a football city. So yeah. like every kid plays football. Yeah, I see. I forget. Like, it's a huge football so part of the world, isn't it? It's like you're born and bred football. Yeah. But just in that fact alone, it was like if that's the mainstream, I was always drawn to like the alternative. Right. Uh, something like it's an individual silent sport in mother, mother nature, which at the time you you sort of, you're living in your bubble and then you suddenly go into the sea and you look back at the shore and you're like, oh my God, there's a whole perspective of the sea and the coastline that you never really knew was there. Yeah, well, and it was a really interesting time for the Northeast that as well, right? Because obviously you've got, that's the like height of Thatcherism. That's the height of that area, basically going through a huge transition where like the old kind of industry and community disappearing as well, right? It's the, the city, well, it remains like a quite sort of, it's a crazy, vibrant, like passionate city. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's gone from coal mines through shipbuilding, and now it's sort of in the sort of next or third or fourth generation on yeah. from that. And um, it's yeah, it's embracing a lot of sort of new technologies and service industries and that sort of stuff. But yeah. um, the surf culture was always there's a little core crew of people up there, and and also when I say well, we were in the sort of Newcastle, but then you could bring it down to like Saltburn and Scarborough, these like pockets of these little surf towns, yeah, up and down the east coast, probably in the same way as in there, so these little remote outposts of um and it felt like you were just part of like a secret little world yeah because it was so offbeat yeah far away from any main surfing wasn't even mainstream at the time but you were like beyond even that's like Newquay felt like going to las vegas or something <laughs> yeah <Just> like <laughs> yeah well, can, rail because, it, in comparison because yeah, the bilbo 2000 surf shop was there and he's like kids had surf stickers on their boards yeah right so how big was the community around that time I mean, you're talking like double figures. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and even, I mean, obviously surfing's very popular now, but you still get moments in time. And you know, Sunday afternoon, it might only be a dozen people in the water on a good day if you're yeah. fortunate. Um, yeah, it's like you knew everybody in the water, and um, it's. I mean, I, I think of it now as being a really special. I guess each generation must feel like they've had a special moment in time. But I do. I feel very lucky to have grown up at that time in that place because it the whole world seems so exciting and I think that's probably what drove me to like really like focus on on surfing more than anything else right and obviously you and your brother Jesse were you know pushing each other and and this was all you, you were doing this together right yeah so but I've got an older brother Jesse he's a couple of years older and a younger brother there's a bit more of a gap between my younger brother and us but me and my older brother would literally like race home from school whoever got home from school first get the wetsuit and the surfboard right and go surfing yeah, and yeah. if you're slower you didn't you wouldn't get, it. get in right <laughs> so that's so it funny like, <laughs> it started off like quite cutthroat yeah but then we had this little crew of like this sort of age group of people around us so there was probably like my best friend in school was a surfer and there's probably like half a dozen kids who were the same you know within a couple of years of each other and i think when you get that sort of like little nucleus of people, same age, same passion. It actually creates quite a lot of like positive energy where you're just like literally pushing each other all the time yeah. to surf the biggest wave, to surf the new reef, to explore here, to do that. And then obviously it would go on as you went down like to win contest if that's what you wanted to do or yeah. Jesse went right into his big wave thing. So, but there's that moment in time without that sort of rivalry, friendship, brotherhood, because from that community, there's basically three or four surfers like went on to do pretty... Oh, there's lots of surfers went on to do good things, but some of them really focused on surfing for yeah. a few years and made a living out kind of it. Kind of came out of that community, yeah, if you yeah. like. Yeah. Which, you know, even though you had great surfers in Saltburn or Scarborough, maybe they didn't... Or Scotland or Ireland, it's maybe taken a couple of generations to get that sort of... Um, for some of those surfers to break out from their home turf. Well, and also they give you the possibility, don't they, that you can do something... And, and that it's kind of, there's, there's a wider world out there and that you don't just have to kind of settle for that. So when you talk about these surfers, it, I'm guessing perhaps people of your generation, but the generation before you as well? So the, the generation before, honestly, is like 
so pioneering because we felt we were doing something pretty fresh and bold but yeah. the generation above us were even literally like hand to mouth surfers um sort of dirtbag surfers um phenomenal some of phenomenal surfers like uh the guy Vich who went best pretty much he was a to me well, he's my complete hero and idol and icon and legend whatever word you want to put up to it this was the guy who we as young kids looked up to and um he was like the sort of god with our young teenage eyes of this because basically he was from the northeast the generation above yeah so what's he like 10 years older than you maybe yeah he would nigel veach right? yeah nigel veach yeah. yeah so yeah he would have probably been uh maybe about 15 years older 10 15 years older. yeah it's um, you know big big gap when you when you're that age yeah isn't it? i guess but i Proper think grown up <laughs> yeah yeah he could drive yeah. he had the car keys yeah, so yeah. we were like the best buds yeah um but he, so he came from that same world that we grew up in, but he got sponsored by Newcastle Breweries. So, I mean, so Newcastle Brown Ale, so it's a win Doesn't get any more away. legendary than that, does it? So he had his beer sticker on his board and basically got paid to go on the world tour. Right. Um, and what, it's such a brilliant little unknown pocket of UK surf history, this, isn't it? It's literally, and he was a fantastic skateboarder, but then he committed to surfing so much, he went down here, won the British Nationals and the European, you know, hit the Europeans, hit the British, hit the English. And suddenly, like, made an impact in the southwest, the right. surfing uh, centre of the UK, and then up beyond that in Europe, and then took that to the world tour, and did a full year on the tour. And um, was he the first person Brit to do that? Then, yeah. I mean, it, it depends whether you go into like the sort of Ted Deer sort of generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's another absolute. Yeah. So like there's like a couple of pioneers, classic character beyond Veach, yeah, or before Veach, but to me, Veach was like the guy that really like sort of attacked it for a full year yeah um and and so this is when you were obviously coming up as well so he was a, was he a direct mentor for you then was he somebody that yeah 100 percent. so pretty much the first year we were starting to surf so you're in the white ward just surfing he was like a sort of enigma like a rumor like right he was on tour and like traveling yeah and you just saw these That's pictures so, so great so like and then literally one of the pictures is he's taking off on the second reef pipeline wave which right. is just like uh, still to this day there's not many brits that is, have a, that's a long way from from yeah. where from where you were surfing isn't it this image like not many british surfers now even have an image that good right in like their portfolio of work or yeah. career and here's this kid from newcastle who got this absolute smoking second reef wave yeah with a Nuki Brown sticker on his board. <laughs> like in the Masters. Yeah, that is, that is pretty so, special. So when he came home to the beach, we were just like, your God has stepped forward. And yeah. Like following in his footsteps. Right. So he was one of the people that basically was like hugely um, inspirational and a big catalyst for the Northeast to, to, you know, to show you all what was possible by the sounds of it. Yeah, and I think, and then sort of alongside his generation with guys like Colin Williams yeah. uh, sort of so I think maybe he might have been a year or two younger and then he went on to do his thing and then you and then Spencer and then Russell and then you, you go on from there like Ruben Asher whoever you want to talk to about these days but um, yeah during that time like that was he was the guy yeah so about this time are you starting to compete yourself and you know take it more seriously on that level because the one thing that I do know about your generation up there is, is a, it's a lot of good surfers, right? You know, yet some of your peers equally, have, like you said, have gone on to do really, really well. Yeah. And that must have also had an impact on how much you all pushed each other, right? Yeah, it was. I, I remember the first time, basically the English nationals came to Tynemouth, which in itself, it doesn't even happen these days, but yeah. it happened back then. I think they toured the event around the country. Um, and the first day on the on the sort of bank where we surf the cars all came up and we'd never been to corner at this time and all the cars came up the boards on the roof and the surfers from around the country were there and it was it was pan flat and the guys had obviously left ways in the southwest yeah and um they jumped out the cars and it was completely flat and they jumped out like, this is an absolute show what are we doing here what are we doing here and we were like our heroes are coming they've seen these kids in the magazines and they turn up on our beach and we're like and they're slating us and slagging us off because yeah. we live in this like terrible flat you, ocean you fucking coots. and we were like oh my god we thought you guys were the best and you're absolute idiots we hate you right that's then funny. The next day, this massive swell hit, and there was like snow on the beach, and it was like phenomenal. Right. And Brilliant. all of a sudden, like, oh, there are waves here. Yeah. And um, from that point on, that was like, I think it was like me and Sam who we were like sort of 
he was a couple of years younger, but we were like neck and neck for a lot of those competitions. And we were like, um, we were in the English Nationals and we placed like fifth and sixth in the English Nationals out of five, because there was five or six of us in the event or whatever it was. <laughs> and then there was, there was also another actually really cool like East Coast circuit where it was like Tymouth had an event, Saltburn, Scarborough. So it was like a sort of three or four different events and you had like add, added up your points. And we all our parents would drive us down the beaches. And then from this sort of East Coast circuit to then we jumped down to Cornwall and, and you know, my parents were really generous and like gave us the encouragement and support to drive us like the seven hours down to Cornwall to compete in the English Nationals and the British and the Cornish and Open, these like sort of um, contests where, you you know, you're suddenly up against the best kids in the country. And sure enough, like if it wasn't me, it was Sam or, or my brother were like placing well in those competitions yeah um and there was probably the highlight of my competitive surfing career even though you're probably only young was like going down there and sort of beating those guys on the home turf because they were the guys to beat so it was like you almost had i'll think of it now as like you almost had to i feel like you almost had to as a young person you were driven to prove to yourself that you're a good surfer by doing these things where you maybe didn't have to basically you could have stayed at home surf the waves yeah to your own ability and got way better waves in theory but you almost had to put yourself out there to get your badge of honor to say i'm sort of yeah well, it's, good. it's a validation thing isn't it you know you you, you kind of need you, you you do need a stamp of approval ultimately unless you're like a really unique individual that's just got like a ridiculous amount of self-confidence especially when you're that age they, they do have that function don't they they kind of they, they give you permission almost yeah it's like and I, I look at all the kids now like you know i guess now you've got the wave pools and we're on the olympics or surfing's on the olympic program and but i feel now there probably is a there is another pathway you don't have to go down there but i feel that for a lot of the kids that i'm looking at who are really good surfers they're still super competitively driven but and i'm looking at them like with a sort of abusement going if i would go back to myself as a young person i'd probably say you probably don't need to do that yeah but you've you've that's your experience though isn't it and probably without putting yourself out there then you wouldn't have got the support from the industry yeah do you you think it's an interesting question i mean do you think for for kids coming through and british kids in particular do you think that's a viable path do you think that you that you could follow the path that you're kind of saying what or would you because it feels to me like quite a lot of strength of character to to a make that decision and then be actually find that path because the one thing for the competition circuit as we're saying is it is a path isn't it and it's a clear path yeah and it does you know for better or worse it, it is a it is a route isn't it and the, the route you're kind of alluding to is is definitely a less straightforward route and it, it always feels like it's an older understanding that you can do that which i think it was how it was with you right as well pretty much yeah, yeah. like i guess Again, like thinking back to that era and when the surf industry was on the rise, maybe the generation a, a few years younger than me benefited even more because they could step into the surf industry with a massive amount of power and influence and salaries and contests and yeah. support network. Whereas we were just on the Veach, Cohen, Williams era, there was a sort of growth period. So it was all yet to come. Yeah. You almost like making it up, or like, yeah, it's like there were opportunities it, to be grasped, yeah. And, and the route was, you know, you you could make it up as you went along a little bit, yeah. yeah. Whereas I look at the kids now, and I think the surf industry has like contracted, and the level of support, bar a handful of really like successful kids on the world tour or whatever, like for a young British kid now to come through, whichever path he takes, probably really hard. There's probably yeah. not that much support from the brands. So either way, you've got to be super confident. And like know your path and commit to it because it's really it's really quite hard now i feel like i'm not saying we were the golden generation i think there was probably it's just there's more money around it's really it's really tough now for anyone I would yeah say, coming it, through i mean it's not a, a great an obvious comparison but it is quite similar in snowboarding as well because i think these days if you're especially if you're a british kid you kind of have to compete really you know, it's the only way you're going to get a profile and it's the only way you're going to give yourself a platform to to kind of then make your own decisions really but it's interesting parallel with your career because that was almost a decision that you had to make wasn't it really at one point by the sounds of it i mean i guess i mean it's pretty much like the the path was pretty much you would compete locally you compete nationally try and like step in the european sort of level you get sponsorship 
and then at that point you're like okay you can you've got your career you've got a salary you can do what you need to do but yeah without the com i guess without the competition aspect you wouldn't even be on that radar and you yeah. just have to like live another life and surf and make your way so what what was the break that kind of put you on that path um, tell me it was the bbc diaries that you did that was that was, that was really <laughs> funny so that was, that was like the height of the video diaries craze wasn't it well like it, early 90s sort of it was uh, we're going back in time to when there were only four tv channels yeah. on the tv yeah yeah and this was bbc2 which had massive viewing figures i don't know what the viewing like in the millions yeah and i was lucky enough to and that was um, the youth culture channel wasn't it yeah and they were doing this like edgy sort of we're talking like GoPro cameras the size of like yeah uh, a massive backpack or something yeah yeah quite nice technology yeah, like, yeah and we had to record uh, it was when I was doing my A-levels so we were recording through a year of doing your A-levels like you had gone through high school and um, it was just it really getting an amazing time where you just like just pass your driving test you're just doing your competitions yeah uh, you're just getting your sponsorship and the BBC like basically followed me for a year but largely we shot it ourselves and someone else edited edited the footage but um the viewing figures were massive on that program and it it's actually got a little bit of it online somewhere don't worry i'll find it and it's, like, <laughs> it's quite painful but like amusing at the same time because it's oh i've said such a, a funny moment in time well because it was pitched as like gabe wants to go to hawaii but he's also got to do his a levels it was that kind of thing wasn't yeah it? yeah it yeah. was like that struggle of like exams versus like your dream career and that's what coming of age like teenage years um and surrounded by your friends and your family and and my little brother owen on there's hilarious oh man i've definitely got to dig that um, out that's, so it's it's funny um, but again you can see why that was exotic in whenever like 92 or 3 or whenever it was because northeast kid who you know wants to be a surfer and go and surf hawaii is definitely for that time in the uk a pretty exotic story isn't it it was sort of before like cold water surfing became a hashtag yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it was like before they invented cold water and surfing yeah that's what we were doing and, and amalgamated them <laughs> yeah, yeah. into like a brand like marketing campaign it was like we were just doing it because that's what we did that's and what you did in your v-neck wetsuit it was like yeah we just oh we just might have got my first sponsorship so yeah it was like a yeah it was a funny time so that helped that gave you a little, little I'd say boost. I'd say it probably did yeah yeah, yeah. Probably, I mean definitely did so what came next um basically like Quicksilver right I got sponsored by Quicksilver um which must have been probably pretty like 16 17 which pretty, at, pretty nice at the time it was like <laughs> I mean the, the best companies in, in the world were like Quicksilver Billabong Ripco and yeah. to me it was like the performance company was Quicksilver and like Tom Carroll like most unbelievable goofy foot in the world was Quicksilver so yeah. I was like sitting on they've got the same stickers on as Tom Carroll and yeah. sure enough you sort of there's a point in time where you either go to university in theory or Quicksilver give you a contract and you've got a check in the bank and you can pay for your flight to go to Hawaii and then bang you're in Hawaii and you're going to do a season in Hawaii like that's where we're going yeah and and then you're stepping into a whole other world. It's like yeah. we've actually like broken out and we're looking at the big wide world and you stand on the beach at Pipeline and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> we're in the big league. <laughs> so how was that? How's it's just like phenomenally scary. Yeah, I bet. Like amazing. Um, who, who'd you go with? Uh, I think Solo. You did? Solo, yeah. And you're yeah. 18. Yeah, yeah. It's um, pretty ballsy move. I was like committed the whole way uh, yeah. we were in. We, I was shared the house with like Spencer, who was a Quicksilver guy. Yeah. Um, it's really cool house on the North Shore, ran by Rex, who's a school teacher at uh, Sunset Beach Elementary. She's right. supported a lot. And ever since then, she's supported a lot of like the kids that have come through, like Joel and a lot of the kids, a lot of the UK kids kind of go through this house or the, some of the media photographers and stuff. Right. So she's like a little outpost of like support when you get to the North Shore and you're there's somewhere you can go there's a familiar face yeah, there's somebody like, that'll like help you out point you in the right direction and it's just like the most phenomenal place um on the planet for surfing at that you know you're stepping out of like newcastle in december and you suddenly uh hot humid air of hawaii yes and seven eights and nine foot boards under your arm and away yeah. you go to the wall like iconic spots well and everyone's there as well and yeah you're in the you're in the sort of in the snake pit of it all how'd you get on um 
I mean, I loved it. I loved being scared every day because you're just suddenly thrown in there. Yeah. Certain waves, I sort of gelled with certain waves more than others. Like Sunset Beach, I could actually go out and get set waves yeah. because it's like a bigger playing field and you probably sort of a bit more of a roll of the dice as to whether you get waves or not. Yeah. So I sort of felt a good connection with Sunset Beach. Pipeline was really difficult. Um, you occasionally get a good wave out there, but it comes with a lot of patience, like a lot of pain and patience to get that wave. Yeah. Um... Yeah, you sort of I found the trick I always found was surfing the, the best waves on the sort of slightly off days. So you'd go out of pipe on a slightly north swell when it's a bit like the wind's a bit funky and you'd go out and just to build your experience up. Yeah. And any any memorable sort of experiences from that time? Um, because I was with... There was a couple, of, a couple of probably the big supporters of our time in Hawaii as a young British surfer with the Malloy brothers. Yeah. Um, who weren't Quicksilver, but we connected through our sort of Irish travels. Yeah. Um, they had a fantastic house at Gas Chambers Pupakea. And these, like, underneath the house was this, this like, stacks of Channel Islands boards, which right. was just, like, the dream quivers. And they were literally just write any board you like, maybe not that one there and this one here. <laughs> and you've got to bear in mind, there's three brothers. Yeah. And they've all got quivers of boards. And it was literally, like, going into, like, tr- like a the pharaoh's tomb of treasures yeah yeah, and yeah. they'd like put you under the wing and like that's take a, you that's out that's amazingly of these spots. generous that they did that it's really cool and they'd like give you a little nudge here and a nudge there to get out beyond your comfort zone so those boys were really supportive of us and also kelly who was on the quicksilver team um at the time was that the first time you guys met uh no we met kelly down in france right um because of the quicksilver like hq was yeah. down in france so he'd come in and out for the contest all the time um, and a couple of surfs with Kelly again he'd push you out of your comfort zone every time you surf with him yeah. basically I guess that's kind of obligatory which is the way it goes isn't it? yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right you know you're getting yourself into that zone yeah um, and the memorable surf there was a good one we had with paddle out with Kelly and Jack Johnson and Jack right. who lives right there phenomenal surfer before his before being a phenomenal musician yeah. he was an amazing surfer or still is and the three of us paddled out and I was like the little duckling behind these two. Right. <laughs> and then I think Jack got a wave, got destroyed, washed in. Kelly got a wave, got destroyed, washed in. We were sitting out on like second reef with third reef, like waves breaking. Right. And I was suddenly like by myself going, oh my God, <laughs> my partner's in crime have gone. Yeah. <laughs> and then sure enough, you had to like, the set game, you had to catch a wave, got an absolute dream wave. And I'm like, well, I paddle out for one more. Or and did I was you go actually, in? It's pretty much just like rode it all the way in past the lifeguard hut and like just claimed it all <laughs> the way. walked into the yard the boys are there with the snap boards and i was like every dog has a day yeah i'm gonna leave that there <laughs> and that was it that's brilliant so it was a pretty fun serving with those guys because they are it's normal to those guys but to us it's like a whole world apart it's yeah amazing so how many seasons did you do there oh we did like back to back for a few years i, mean, I yeah. can't think off the top of my head but it was like over like half a dozen yeah um amazing and yeah we surfed a little bit at Waimea some of the other sort of outer reefs are a little bit off the radar but um challenging yeah um so yeah yeah and then so you're being supported by Quicksilver and essentially you made the decision to kind of if you like follow the sort of you know I'm going to call it the free surf path because you, you obviously didn't follow the competitive path but that was a that was a decision that you made and yeah like you were um, able to do that yeah I mean the contract with Quicksilver was pretty loose in that that you got your salary and again I was doing that the European contest scene for a while where you just track weekend after weekend after contest after contest down to Portugal and back but it felt like you're on a bit of a treadmill and I was never that good or that comfortable in that world like occasionally you get a good result or you drive to Portugal you get knocked out go to drive home or alternatively you invest that same money and you go to Ireland when you know the waves are firing with a photographer who's a friend, surf the incredible waves, the magazines run the story. Yeah. Quicksilver's happy. Yeah. So so before free surfing was a thing, it was almost like it pulled me that way. Yeah. With some amazing friends from who are photographers and stuff or like filmmakers um, that were equally inspired by that more than just sitting with a contest vest looking at whatever heats in next. Yeah. Well, like you say, it was a time in industry where, you know, there was cash you could kind of do that you could be supported to do that and also you know you've mentioned Ireland a time when you could presumably 
do some you know you were exploring it and and basically seeing what was possible over there right yeah like island again it was that i guess it was in the same way that newcastle was that counterculture and unexplored locations island again and having that bit of experience in hawaii you suddenly came back to the the coastlines of ireland and scotland and you realize that the waves there are as good or as big or as scary as the hawaiian waves but there's no lifeguard there's no palm trees and there's not really anyone else to paddle out with yeah and it's freezing and it's freezing yeah but the waves as we've now know like everyone knows islands on like on the list of places to go it's got the most phenomenal waves like every you know island really punches above its weight in imagery and um all the surf brands have used imagery from there and the surfers use content from there because it's so beautiful stunning amazing and also intermittent you can sit there for six months at a time and not score a session or you can go there for two weeks and never do a turn because you're gonna get barreled every day yeah so when was your first trip there um yeah probably i was pretty much like 16 so that would have been like yeah like like sort of mid 80s early 90s and And that was um, the classic like you said right of passage yeah pretty much it's like we sort of hit the main surf towns but it probably it was after we came back from hawaii that we saw the Malloy's toe surfing at Mullock Moor. Yeah. And myself and Richie Fitzgerald, one of the Irish uh, sort of key locals in Bundoran, we were sitting on the headland going, like, we need to get on this programme. Right. And Richie had been in Hawaii as well for a few seasons. Yeah. And at that point, we were like, it's game's birth for toe surfing. So we were like, we've got to get... Well, I actually brought a tow board back from Hawaii. It's like a really terrible, like, 7.6 tow board with foot straps, which when you look at them now we were completely off the you know the equipment was absolutely terrible but that was yeah. the first towboard i'd ever seen it was for sale i was buying it we've yeah. taken it home we haven't got a jet ski we bought the worst possible jet ski <laughs> and away we go like yeah. pioneering at those spots so when was this this would have been like 90s early 2000s yeah I was, I was thinking it was kind of 99 maybe yeah like probably sound about right? just uh, yeah around then right it was like uh, the Malloys had just done Thicker Than Water. We'd served Pampa when, like, Joel Fitzgerald at Litmus, that fantastic yeah, section well, of I mean, Litmus. That's, that is that's the legendary kind of... Probably, like, one of the best five minutes of surf yeah. footage you could argue anyway. And, like, you know, obviously influence of a generation, right? I literally. Mean, yeah, literally. everyone of our age cites that section. Well, firstly the film, and then secondly that section, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Do you think that was, like, what kind of opened up for people like pretty much i think like we were there and we'd seen it but this was the first time it captured what you saw yeah and i think a lot of that section was shot by john frank it's like phenomenal australian yeah cameraman just next level yeah filmmaker kind of contextualize it and made everybody realize what was possible Um, and and the you know this the again it's that sort of the the beauty of being out in the sea looking at those phenomenal ways but you look back at the town of pandora itself which is this sort of like tatty seaside town like yeah, frayed it's, it's, frayed had its day seaside town yeah amusement arcades and chip shops and bars but then you look in the water and it's just stunning and this ben bulban that crazy mountain behind stunning yeah. pampa stunning mullock moor like literally one of the best big waves in the world yeah well it's just absolutely incredible setting isn't it all within like 10 miles of yeah it's like a like a 10 mile miracle pretty much between mullock moor and tullin strand it's phenomenal waves so how was that apprenticeship? It's like completely cowboy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it sounds like it. And, it, and you know, it, pretty consequential. <laughs> yeah, like, but again, it was that amazing moment in time where, yeah, the jet ski we had was terrible. Um, it broke down and, you know, conked out. We had to swim it in. We never actually called the lifeboat, even though the lifeboat came to help us once or twice. Really? Just like, what are they still up to? It was like the hill walkers like said, there's people swimming a jet ski back to the shore. And we're like, we're not calling the lifeboat. <laughs> like principle. Yeah, yeah. Even though we swam for like three hours to get right. back to shore. <laughs> right. Um, it's just, pie. yeah, just literally, we didn't know where we are going or how to do it, but we learned. And, and again, then that became... It's incredible when you think now and you look at where we're at now and I know you spoke to Greg recently and like the impact vest and the yeah. safety courses. Yeah, exactly. And the sort of brotherhood and the safety around the big wave crew. Like we were like out by ourselves and then someone else joined us like the Cotties and the Almini. Like yeah. those guys came to join us. 
you know, then there's like a, a half a dozen skis, possibly, if you were lucky. But now there's like almost dedicated water, you know, the Irish water safety yeah, yeah. crew are fantastic. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more like supporting, yeah, a lot more support there for safety. But then often with that comes crowds. But, yeah. So we didn't have the crowds, but we also didn't have the safety backup. Um, what is amazing now is the waves that we were obviously toe surfing thinking we were like the heroes of the day the guys are now paddling them people are paddling them <laughs> yeah like ditch the skis and in not a you know huge amount of time really it's yeah like it's, a rapid it's like, pretty quick isn't it a rapid change to go from like complete novices apprenticeship like completely new territory the, the, the people had looked at that wave a lot more for generations and never surfed it yeah do you know who the first to surf it was? Um, I don't think it was the Malloys. I think one of the local guys paddled out. I can't think of his name, but basically the Malloys are the first to like capture it as right. a moment. Um, and then it was probably, yeah, like Richie and myself, some of the bodyboarders that are out there quite early on. Um, and then there was a, then there was a few years where there was a little crew of us would like try and hit Mullet more on, on the days. And then right now, you know, people fly in for those swells. Yeah. Well, um, like you say, it's one of the kind of big ticket <laughs> events really now, isn't it? You know, big Irish swell. It's like everyone's there, circus. It's pretty much, because it it's a really, um, like it's a sort of dangerous wave, but it's also very re- rewarding because you can get a massive barrel. It's not just a big drop. It's got risk, but then it's not as dangerous as say like Portugal Nazare has the massive wave and the draw. But yeah. to me, the risks far outweigh the sort of benefit. Like you get a massive wave, but the risks are you're going to bounce off the cliff, yeah. die, get caught in the shore break, die, yeah. get caught by some like swinging peak, die, come, yeah. like yeah, just lose your ski. <laughs> like, lots of hazards everywhere. Yeah. Whereas with Mullet Moor, there's, you know, like a channel. It's like, a, it'll never actually close out. There's sort of like safety. It's very dangerous, it's shallow, but there's sort of a safety element to it where, okay, you're going to get waves on the head, you've got an impact, two or three waves, Yeah. but then you will at some point get spat out into sort of a safe zone. So this is pretty much bringing us up to, so it sounds like you basically came that for about 10 years, right? From when you, you know, and does this bring us to almost like the end of your association with Quicksilver? Yeah, so it's probably... One of the probably sort of end, sort of the big end point of that Irish sort of period was 2009 when we shot the film Wave Riders. Yeah. So that was a big, um, again, thinking about how like the surf industry kind of went from boom to bust again. And at that point in time, the sort of film, there was funding for films like cross-border funding from Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland. And so we managed to be part of a film production Um that was a really high-profile film. It's shot on film, not on digital. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'll put a link to it because it's on it's on YouTube, I think. I think maybe Netflix or somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. still out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, and and like you know, big cast, right? You know, the Malloys were in it, aren't they? We got Kelly's Kelly in, in it. And know. it was like pretty much the budget was like seven-figure budget. Yeah, for that film. So and Lauren wrote it. Lauren wrote it. Yeah. Um, and it was almost like, yeah, um, between myself, Richie and Lauren, we sort of like dreamt up the cast and the director, Joel. And Joel had the vision to go big. We're going to shoot on film and we want the We're going to raise sequ- the money. Yeah, he was like sourced the money. And it was yeah. all cross-border bon- cross European money, which probably isn't there anymore. Yeah, it's like, well, it not, almost, not for long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the border would be there, but not the money. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, there'll definitely be a border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, again, like of its time you were able to take these resources and this idea and create this what is in hindsight you probably couldn't do that now could you i don't think so and then and and it was also the first time it had been seen because the malloys had surfed mullet more but it was never really to its optimum and we'd seen stills of it but um the win- basically the window of filming for that film i think it was the the first of december was a cutoff period we almost had like a year to shoot and um the first of December was a was like a, approaching. We hadn't really had a massive swell. The biggest swell we'd had was in the mid-May, a swell at Aliens on the, the right-hander under the cliffs, which was beautiful, like whatever, like eight to 12 feet sort of swell. Beautiful, nice film, nice ending. But we really wanted to show the potential, which we hadn't got. Yeah. And that for some reason, that September, October, November, it didn't, nothing came together. And then just as the window was closing, they're like, we're going to wrap the film, you know, we're done, we've got to hit the festival deadline or whatever it was. 
um, there was this really long range shot of this storm brewing. And I'm like, no, God, like, hold fire. Like, try and keep the guys on hold. It might just happen. And everyone's going, now we're done, we're done. And then basically as it got closer, I'm like, not this low pressure is coming. And it was basically one of the storms of the decade, like one right. of the mega storms. And there was a, a three hour window at, we used to surf at a higher tide. Now the guys surf at lower tide because the way the world works, they like the really crazy waves. We liked it a little bit softer at higher tide. Yeah, we'll take the high. So, so, so we were just learner drivers. So we were serving mainly at higher tide. Yeah. So it was, I think it was a Saturday morning, three hour window at higher tide before the midday, the wind, hurricane wind kicked in. And pretty much I said, this is, we're going to have a window of three hours where right. we could get what we need. And so Joel like flew in the resources. Jason Baffer came in from America to shoot because not many guys can actually shoot film in the water. The Malloys couldn't make it. Right. Because they were at a wedding. Oh, Heart, A heartbreaking moment. Ouch. So then it turned out, and sure enough on the day we were like, it's one of those days where we don't know how big it is. It's the biggest day we've ever seen. So how big is that? We don't know. And um, I think it was it three skis went out. Myself, Richie, Cotty, Almini, Duncan Scott. Must have been someone else if there's three skis. Forgive me for if I forget. But that turned out to be obviously the amazing finale of the film, but also like we'd almost like committed to this wave yeah. to this moment in time and like we got the to biggest see it through to that point. Oh Mickey, Mickey Smith paddled out on a bodyboard from the cliffs. He jumped off he didn't we had a boat in the channel. We had Jesse backup <laughs> safety. Mickey just bails off the cliff of the bodyboard in his waterhouse and swam out. Obviously got an absolute like smoking sequence shot. That is such and a Mickey story. Like, <laughs> and I was like, Mickey, what did you think? And he was like, thought it was amazing. I'm like, if Mickey thinks it's amazing, yeah, it's amazing. It's good. Yeah. That's brilliant. So yeah, that was a real... Is that capped it? Pretty much. like it capped the era? Yeah, pretty much it did. Like yeah. whether we knew it or not at the time, it kind of did. Yeah. So, you, you know, you kind of voluntarily called time on your career with Quicksilver, right? Is that, is that, is that fair to say? I, yeah, so I was like... I was like a pro surfer, like team rider for a period of time, worked with a team in the marketing department. Um, and then I was like, yeah, marketing communications to on towards the end. And I was like transitioning into like... The classic thing. Like, where do we go from here? Like, is yeah. there a way into the marketing team, which is obviously like the dream gig within yeah. one of those companies. You know, I love film. I love photography. I love writing. Like, what's the next path? Environmental work, but... I'd basically always had in my back of my eye, like Patagonia's been this like iconic company. Due to the influence of the Malloys as very well, maybe. So, yeah, because very it was much. the Malloys that really transformed the category, right, for Patagonia. But literally, like, they, yeah. like, kick-started it pretty much or influential from the very which was start. A, and which was, at the time, a punt for them, really, wasn't it? It was massive. Yeah. They were, obviously, with Billabong for yeah. a period of their time, then with Hurley. And then I think anyone who works with Bob Hurley is, like, really connected yeah. to him regardless so, so Bob left Billabong started his own company Hurley which at that time when you know they were on huge contracts they were on, Keith was on the world tour like they're doing really well they're yeah. all doing their thing and then they stepped literally stepped out of the surf world you could argue into it with to work with an outdoor brand yeah because I guess it was seen as outdoor brand or surf really wasn't it like, I think all the all the people that work for the outdoor brand surfed or climbed or skied yeah but they didn't you know what I mean though it didn't have that uh, it, I'm not going to use the word legitimacy, but now it's like that. That's what they gave it, right? Yeah. Oh, literally. Yeah. 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 And they. Yeah. So and that so that was what kind of planted the seed for you. Pretty much, they were on a completely different wavelength. They were like, and you got to bear in mind, like the guys were incredible surfers. They yeah. were like part, like part of that momentum generation. Yeah, yeah. Keith's yeah. like on well, the world I mean, tour. Jesus, like absolute like, legends. Incredible. <laughs> but they literally turned their back on that or or took their knowledge from that and said we could actually use this knowledge as a force for good yeah. within this company and actually create a, create take all the best things we've learned from these other brands and Billabong you know they've seen all their friends at Quicksilver and all the other brands to work with someone like Yvonne Chunard who's an inspiration for doing good so it's like how do we take our knowledge to change the world for a better place yeah because you must have you were involved personally with Surface Against Suicide from an early age right Yes, yeah, so just on the environmental tip, because I imagine grow, growing up surfing when you did, as we discussed earlier, it's probably quite a real concern, right? So probably if you rewind right back to when I was 
yeah, those early teenage years, those like super formative years of a young teen growing up, coming of age years. I had Veach, who was this like competitive surfing idol, who was just served pipeline. Yeah. And then likewise, we had a character like Chris Hines, who yeah. was the original founder of Surfs Against Sewage. Another Surfs absolute force of nature. Yeah, like Surfs Against <laughs> Sewage attracts these incredible people like Hugo uh, and, you know, everyone that works there is passionate. But at the time, it was Chris Hines and the issue was water quality. Yeah. And we were surrounded by like sewage outflows, industrial waste, um, rivers that are super toxic, you know, all the fish are gone in the rivers. And Chris Hines was so confident in the in the quality of UV treatment for sewage systems that he would put his head under <laughs> a sewage outfall pipe. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, that is so he's like, So he, I think he went to the Channel Islands yeah. and they just put in UV treatment and he says, I'm so confident I'm going to literally have a shower <laughs> under the sewage outfall flow pipe. And we were on the beaches in Hartlepool where it's like 10,000 times over the EU, EC, uh, EU limit for water quality. Yeah. And he's like, you guys, you know, he's like pressuring the water companies to do better. Yeah. Putting in standards. When you meet someone like that, who's that passionate about yeah. what they do, you're like, it's a game changer. So automatically you're on track to be like, these guys are as radical, if not more radical than any service I ever know. And a lot of the service we knew of that era are complete like yeah. rock and roll stars to us. Yeah, of course. So when someone environmental does the same thing, you're like, this guy's amazing. Like, I want to follow this guy down this track. Yeah. So you, you were involved quite early on with surfers going to sewage right like yeah like i had like the inflatable turd you know like the 10 15 <laughs> foot inflatable turd yeah that we took that to the house of parliament they took it to government it did incredible things really grand they bought shares in the water companies like steve england uh, was part of it at the time you know they bought shares in the water companies so they could go to the agm and petition the agm yeah of the of the companies that are causing the problems you know really like groundbreaking stuff at the time so yeah, I like I'm a big fan of those guys, and then that's where it ties in with someone like Patrick. Anyway, like, well, we love what we're doing. We want to protect our, you know, everyone wants to save the world, but like, how do we do it, and what's the most effective way of doing it? Yeah. So how did that come about? Because that's what you're doing now, right? What, you run the surf program for Europe. Is yeah. That right? So it's a surf program for Europe for Patagonia, um, and you know, some of it's sales oriented, some of it's marketing oriented, but the bit that really inspires myself is like whatever influence we have as individuals or as a company or as a group of friends or a community or as an industry like how can we pull together to like change the world that's it basically that's where it's interesting it's a pretty nice brief pretty good and and the most interesting bit is that Yvonne Schoenard is literally saying they changed the mission statement and he is like he's rad he's radical and impatient for change so this is from the top of the company all the way down yeah going to everyone that we work with the suppliers the surf shops like if you're not on that program like I'd watch out because like it's the company is going in such a direction at such a speed that like they they want to make change yeah so what are you working on at the minute on that tip because um, fight, obviously fight for the bite is yeah. something you've been involved with yeah so that was I mean that was largely driven by the Australian um, Patagonia Australia uh, it came largely from a lot of their ambassadors like uh, Dave Rastovich, Heath Josk, Belinda, Dan Ross, Wayne Lynch, you know, all of that crew. I think they had quite an open brief in Australia to say like, guys, like, like how can we support you guys and what you want to do? And, you know, there's issues with fish farming down there. There's issues with um, coal mine, that Adani coal mine, which sounds absolutely disastrous. But then the drilling in the Great Australian Bite is one where they think they can win. Basically, uh, two other big petrochemical com companies have pulled out. It's a super high-risk well, very, very deep. With not, it would be the deepest in the world, right? I think maybe the second, second yeah. or third deepest, the deepest in very rough water. Yeah. And because Equinor is largely state-owned, there's a hope that Norway, being like a um, forward-thinking nation, that they might be able to pressure the shareholders into pulling back from the frontier zones. Right. So the frontier zones being the arctic yeah uh the, the great australian Dubai, bite yeah you know these sort of undrilled zones that are high risk do yeah. we need that oil because they we pulled need out of uh, lofferton didn't they 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 did which it's is a got like a stay of execution campaign as well wasn't it that campaign's probably gone like 10 or 15 years yeah. which i hadn't really heard I much met, about when i was up there in march i met some of the people behind that and they were they were very impressive individuals because you know i 
it's obviously a massive cliche, but they were just ordinary people, <laughs> you know, who'd worked out how to fight one of the biggest oil companies in the world and, and were winning, you know. It's incredible. It was really, really impressive. So, like, if I feel like if you get a win like that, it's super powerful. And then it could be, I guess, well, it, uh, basically, Heath went to Loughton to, like, learn from those guys. Yeah. Then I was with him when we went to the AGM of one of the biggest petrochemical companies in the world. Oh, that was quite recently, wasn't it? That was just back in May. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. You did the paddle out, didn't you, in so, Oslo? Yeah, Yeah, they've been doing these amazing paddle outs. Australia's like every weekend, literally yeah. thousands of people and in he, Australia. And he gave a speech at the shareholders meeting, it's right? It's an incredible... I think every anyone could speak for about a minute and a half. Yeah, because it's a public the, company and you, you have a platform, don't you, that you can do that. That's right. But basically, he was on the stage for, I think so, four, four minutes, 30. And I'm, it was, I had goose pimples in the crowd. Right. And up until that point, you're in a room with like 200, 250 people in grey suits who are all like owners of this, like shareholders worth millions. All our pensions are tied up in these companies. Yeah, and they're being told that this is probably, you know, for the benefit of the company and that's what they need to do. Yeah, it's like the company line, it makes money. It's yeah. eye-watering and you're sitting there going, how do you possibly turn this ship around? Yeah. Like, how do you change? You're like inside the Death Star. It's like you're in a world where you're like, we're not going to make a difference. And then yeah. he stood up and literally to the CEO, handed him the handed over 350 letters from his community to the CEO. And that AGM was all about fight for the bite and all about climate change. So there was an Aboriginal elder, there was Greenpeace put forward a motion, there was pensioners against uh, fossil fuels, like yeah. incredible NGO communities are all like talking about divestment or you know putting your energy into, putting your resources into renewables. So there's, on one hand, you're like, we're to one person, how do you change the world? But there's lots of little things you can do to like step it up and this was amazing to be part of that where you're like, actually like one person. Because Heath was never an activist. He's yeah. just a surfer who's like, actually, I'm going to stand up. I can do this. Yeah, so. that is amazing. Well, I guess I want to end by bringing you back to the northeast, really. Because what are you now? 30 years you've been surfing up there? You dedicated your life to it. Yeah, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean to you now? Um, it's still like such a special place. Like we, It's almost like when you're a young kid, you, you love it. You fall in love with it. And then you're desperate to leave to find the. You sort of leave to find the world. Yeah. And you're almost on a rubber rubber band. Yeah. Come it brings back. you back. And we spent so much time in Ireland and Hawaii and France. We were probably in France for over ten years. But yeah, now I'm back home. It's really it is an amazing community. The waves are potentially amazing on the day. I yeah. probably shouldn't tell too much about some of the waves, but some no, of the waves of are phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um. Yeah, it's just a nice place to be right now. It's a nice place to be. Yeah. And what's it like surfing then after all this time for you? Um, yeah, it's still, still amazing. When on the right reef, on the right day, it's, it's magical. It's absolutely magical. I'd love... Uh, I've got a little boy now. It's nice to see him. I'm almost as stoked seeing him on little one-foot waves on his foamy. Yeah. But there is the... On the six to eight-foot days, there's these phenomenal waves that, you know... We know they're out there. They'll come again. Yeah. Because um, you've passed it down as well, you know, haven't you? You've you've tried to mentor the generation that came up after you, right? Yeah. There's a f there's a few kids. There's like Sandy and Louie, uh, who are both like very good servers. Yeah. I guess it's just sharing that knowledge, isn't it? It's like yeah. I, I I totally appreciate how lucky I was, and I got a roll of the dice where there was a moment in time, and it all rolled really well. Yeah. So I, hundred percent, but feel like really like grateful for for that moment that i've had and i'd love to see you know others have the same yeah and so and then also protect what we've got obviously it's like be it my backyard your backyard like i think as the surfers we are like the counterculture movement and we what i loved about surfing was the radical people whether it was chris hines in sas veach as this young surfer the Malloys like turning their back on pro surfing to go down a sort of environmental farming route like those sort of radical characters I feel like that is the that is the most inspirational thing to me and that's how I'd like to think that the surfer community could like move forward and be like the most radical community in the world and you still think surfing has the possibility to, to deliver that I think surfers have the possibility to deliver that 
surf industry. I'd argue probably hasn't. I think yeah, the surf industry I guess that's a very important distinction, isn't has, it? Has probably not done enough. It should be worth remembering that, actually, isn't it? So the surf flash. industry isn't surfing. Nah, I'd say Basically. the surf industry is probably, in recent years, I feel quite let down by the surf industry in a lot of ways, actually, because I don't feel they've stepped up. Like a lack of leadership. Yeah, I can't see it. Which I is, can't see it. Yeah, and it's also funny because it seems to be in the shit as well. It's probably, like, they could be the most radical. If the surf industry were less concerned about, like, cheap T-shirts and board shorts or whatever, yeah. or, like, increasing their footprint, and they became the most radical part of the clothing industry if the surf companies like led the way in the in the clothing industry that would actually be quite amazing because i feel like the surfers would get it the surfers would support it yeah and they've and the footprint is big enough where they could probably make an influence on the supply chain or on the industry outside of the surf world but yeah it's literally just feels like surfers surf industry is selling t-shirts and shorts and, and do you, i mean i just used the word but do you, do you think that is a lack of leadership like a lack of vision really it's it's probably yes but probably it might be also be like short-term thinking. Whereas, yeah. unfortunately, with Patagonia, it's a private company, they can think really long-term and they're thinking ahead like 10, 20, 50 years' time. Like they put 10 years into their wetsuit design to get Ulex wetsuits. Whereas, if you're like a listed company, you've got to go by the court, you know, quarterly like share prices or whatever. Yeah. So they probably, maybe everyone's sort of in fear for their own jobs. Maybe they haven't, they can't like steer their ships too big and they can't turn fast enough probably individuals in the company want to do more but aren't empowered to do so yeah um so yeah uh, that is from looking in on it now i find that is quite it doesn't fit with where the surfing community is i feel the surfers are probably forward thinking the surf industry it's it's not quite there yeah well like i say it's, it's it's definitely worth remembering that they're not the same thing isn't it really all right definitely final question um it's going to be a surfing one just because, you know, we talked a lot about all the different places that you've served. Obviously, you've surfed everywhere. Um, where's your favorite place to surf? Like, it's a very glib question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it because, you know, um, that's quite a range of experience you've, you've outlined today. I, I love, there's a little village in Yorkshire. Uh, it's like two hours from home. There's three fantastic reef breaks that on the day are just phenomenal. And it's almost like the going to this little village the journey there brings back all of the memories from your childhood, but then all of your experience is as a surfer over the generation of like your career. You need to be quite a technical surfer to get the best out of the wave. Yeah. So it's it brings back these amazing memories as a young kid, but also like it really challenges you every day. You right. surf there, um, and there's like a diehard posse that surf this wave when it's on. So yeah. it's a little wave in North Yorkshire that. Uh, is stunning that I would say is my favourite place in the world so there you go that was my conversation with Gabe I hope you enjoyed it so glad we got to dig right into the history of northeast surfing and particularly the looming influence of the great tragic figure that is Nigel Veach such an influential yet untold chapter of British surfing and indeed sideways history I mean a guy from Newcastle doing that well and getting sponsored by Newcastle Brown Ale is the stuff of legend really and it should be better known yeah looking forward to documenting this more in future episodes also looking forward to surfing up there at some point as i say it's shocking really that i've never got my shit together to go up there got some pals from brighton that head up there a lot and obviously pretty sure gabe would show me show me the ropes up there so yeah i might have to get up there at some point soon so housekeeping corner huge thanks to everybody who got in touch to tell me how much they enjoyed the Dougie Lampkin episode had some brilliant feedback from Dougie actually who it turns out thoroughly enjoyed himself during our conversation which is obviously ace also had some great feedback from people in the trials and motorcycling communities which was appreciated because obviously it's not my world and um, you know I'm glad that it went down well really among people who know the world better than I ever will so thank you if you got in touch and let me know about that very much appreciated as I mentioned last week been having a little time off the pod for various live admin reasons but I'm back at it now hoping to get back up to full operational capacity soon, which means drum roll. Another episode of Type 2 is on the horizon and will be coming a few days after this one. This episode is my interview with the great Belinda Bags, who I met in Ventura back in April and with whom I had a really brilliant in-depth discussion about the fight for the bite and her own path into activism. 
Now, the f- response to my first episode of Type 2 with Greg Long was really amazing. So huge thanks to everybody who got in touch to let me know they enjoyed it. One question that I did hear quite a lot, how do I hear the episodes? I actually hear that uh, incredible amount of times. Um, generally, the answer is subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can follow me on SoundCloud. It's really not that complicated. There's actually a lot of podcast purveyors out there these days. If you search for Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, you're going to find it if you subscribe. Every episode will land in your virtual inbox each time the new one is released. You literally don't have to do anything. So that's how you hear it. That's how you can hear Type 2 as well. Um, obviously, I will be chatting about that on social as well. So go and follow me over there at We Look Sideways on Instagram. Actually fucked off Facebook the other day. Just got to the point when I was like, why am I even looking at this? I act like a cock on air and it winds me up. So I've deactivated Facebook and it feels pretty good. I'm going to be honest. Um, so let's see how long that lasts. If I can, you know, I might get tempted back, but Christ almighty, it's depressing on there these days. Basically everyone banging on about Brexit and Boris Johnson and all that. So yeah, I don't know. Feel good about the holiday. But yeah, Twitter still kind of hanging on in there. Do the odd thing on there, mainly retweet people. Instagram is where I tend to do the most stuff. So at We Look Sideways, if you are interested in interacting with me over there, as I believe they call it. Apart from that, just working out a few trips. Go to Cornwall for a week or so in August. Doing the usual praying for sun and surf, which is unlikely at that time of year, but it can happen. So fingers crossed. Got a couple of podcasts planned, but not much else. So yeah, that's it for this week. Going to sign off. Hope you enjoyed this one with me and Gabe and I'll see you next time. Nice one. <laughs>